Hello and welcome to episode 42 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast with me, Anthony Samroff. And of course, me, Tom Webb. We are here today with an astonishingly special guest, Mary Ruart, former medical researcher and uh, long-time libertarian activist. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. I'm a real fan of your work, especially your book, Healing Our World, which this is the second edition of, but you are now on fourth edition. Its subtitle is now The Compassion of Libertarianism, which I think is wonderful. What a great subtitle, because if you've read a lot of libertarian stuff, as I'm sure many of our audience have, uh, some of it can be a bit stuffy, um, but I think that a lot of people who don't share our views sell their views on compassion, on this is care, caring to have these views. You know, the left um, seem to believe they have a monopoly, and you really stress the the compassion of libertarianism in this book and how in the long term it's better for people in general. So, well, first of all, thank you so much for coming on our show, and would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Well, I'm delighted to be here, actually. You know, I love doing these kinds of things. I'm I'm kind of a teacher <laughs> by, uh, by inclination, I guess you could say, and really that's what my writing is about. I, I'm very excited about sharing the libertarian message because I have I was a libertarian for many years before I really kind of got it. <laughs> right. And when I say got it, I mean I had this moment of, I mean, I guess you could call it revelation where everything came together. You know, the right. libertarian philosophy, uh, the idea of loving your neighbor, uh, the idea of having the means and ends be intimately related, and having yes. really practical solutions for the world's problems. It's interesting. Interesting because sometimes things seem complex. But when you understand how the world works, all of a sudden it becomes fairly simple. And yes. what came to That's me funny. was yeah, what came to me is the non aggression principle just really mm -hmm. solved a lot of our problems once we understood how that actually worked. So true. It's like uh, seeing the matrix. You know, a lot of people are very skeptical. If you don't have government do this or that or the other, then there's going to be chaos in those areas. But once you start to understand economically that non-aggression tends to have good results in the long term, maybe sometimes there'll be hurdles in the short term, but it provides the correct incentives to get good results over time. Then once you can see that, then it makes sense. It's like the world is harmonious. There's natural laws, gravity, the laws of physics and so forth. And in the human realm, it seems like the, the non-aggression principle is a technology. And when we set up our society based on it, we notice that we get good results. And the, the more we violate the non-aggression principle, over time, people become badly off. They become less capable of uh, providing for themselves, less strong and uh, dependent on others, afraid, and they're therefore in need of further mm -hmm. um, coercion because they've lost the skills that allowed them to be free in the first place. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes, you understand. <laughs> yeah, I think that your book does a really good job. You said you see yourself as an educator and I feel like your book, the way that you explain it, you explain it as though you're explaining it to someone for the first time that can go, hmm, yeah, like now when you put it that way, I see you taking me through the logical steps one by one and I can follow you to your conclusion. And you have lots of historical evidence and examples to back up your point. And so I appreciate you you saying that you you see yourself in a, a, as, a, as a teacher. And I appreciate you saying that, it's that it took you 10 years or so before things really clicked. Because I've said before in my own writing, Things on one article might be an insight that it took me 10 years to stitch together because even though I was still a libertarian four years ago or six years ago, I didn't have as all embracing a view of the issue until yeah. now. And, uh, and, and I think the breadth of your view really comes across in the book. So I want to give the new fourth edition of Healing Our World um, my strongest endorsement. Thank you. 
And of course, one of the reasons the book is so uh, flows so well is my sister Marty helped me out with it. You know, when I first had the sense of revelation, I tried to I tried to communicate it to her, but it wasn't in English, you know, it was an understanding. <laughs> but because we were very close, she got it. And so I would send her my manuscript. She would send it back, sometimes with more red ink than black ink, <laughs> and mm. tell me, well, you know, I don't think this is quite clear enough, or it's not the tone you're going for. Because I had been writing technical articles right. for so long. I didn't want this to read okay. like a technical article. And initially I thought, well, I'll put one or two examples in of how this works in the real world. But then as I started digging, I realized that just about everything that we suggest as libertarians has actually been tried somewhere in the world at some time right. and found to work really well. So I started collecting all these things and pretty soon uh, it became, I think, probably still is the a largest compilation of how liberty works in the real world. And of course, we needed to work in the real world or why bother, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. So what were the main astonishing insights you learned yourself from reading the book that uh, gave you a lot of great satisfaction to discover and then to pass on to others? Well, I think probably the biggest thing was I recognized that if we don't blow ourselves up, <laughs> we are going to evolve to a libertarian world. And the reason is we are hardwired for liberty. It's built into our genes. And we thrive best when we have liberty. And you know, we can see this example really in the United States when for a while it was, at least for white males, <laughs> um, the freest country in the world. Mm -hmm. And of course it's gradually, hopefully becoming better for other people too. But um, just having even a segment of the population be free for a great increase in the wealth creation. If you look at the wealth creation that happened in early history, it's basically very low. I mean, people were living on about a dollar a day for most of recorded history. But once the Industrial Revolution hit, which was made possible by the freedom that was in the United States and spread to Europe, uh, then all of a sudden, some of the countries became very wealthy. And that was a wonderful thing because it meant no more starvation. Of course, the developing countries, unfortunately, weren't free and they didn't become free. And they are still mm. suffering from that. So if we want the developing countries to become wealthy, all we need to do is to encourage the freedom. And of course, it's, yeah. it's, something, it's not something where we can bring troops in and, and free mm. them. That doesn't quite work. Mm. I mean, people have to embrace the concept of freedom, but what we're actually doing in many ways is thwarting that because our tax dollars yes. are being used to prop up, unfortunately, prop up dictatorships in the third world which exploit the people. Uh, Saddam Hussein is a, is a good example of that. So that's very sad. Because so, yes. in a way, yes, so in a way it's karmically very bad. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. So where, where, where does, where does your, your, your optimism spring from? Because I mean, although I'm a libertarian, I don't quite share the optimism. I don't really know that okay. it's going to yeah. go the way we want it. I mean, like, if you look at America, for example, it started out, yeah, it was this great democratic experiment and there was, so much, there was liberty, there was economic liberty, they were going to do things differently to they did in Europe. And yet, laterally, the power got more centralized, you know, uh, it, it, everything seemed to go wrong. So what, what, what makes you feel optimistic that, that liberty is going to well out? Well, that's a good question. Um, first of all, because um, liberty brings great wealth and people want to be wealthy. They want to have enough money so that they do not have to worry about feeding their children, for example. And so yeah. once they understand that liberty is connected to that, they're going to want that. But beyond that, um, people often ask me, well, you know, but some people don't care about wealth. They already have it. They want power. So how do, how do those yeah. people? So let me tell you a little story. It took me many years to understand what was going on here. I had the opportunity to visit with someone who was one of the people who put together the propaganda to convince us that, yes, we should violate the non-aggression principle for the common good. <laughs> and... Mm. So that's what he did for a living. And, and I asked him, I said, well, what are your goals in life? And he said, power and money. And I thought Sounds he was like, kidding at first because he had okay. both of them. You know, yeah, yeah. 
I realized I hadn't asked the right question. So I, I said, well, what do you think it would take to make you happy? Because he clearly was not a happy man. Right. And he said, well, you know, I think to be happy, I'd have to feel connected to humankind, and I don't. And if you think about that for a moment, you can see why. Because before you can deceive somebody, defraud them, make them think that what you're proposing is good for them, even though you know it's a lie, <laughs> you have to separate yourself from them. You can't think of them as, as your, you know, as somebody that you love or somebody you care about or somebody who like you. You have to say, I'm better than they are. I'm smarter. Um, mm -hmm. They don't deserve. Well, well, Mary, well, I am. But Mary, I am. <laughs> <laughs> So anyhow, when you create that separation... I did over 500 hits on my podcast. What have they done? <laughs> uh, anyhow, so when we become... Before we become aggressors, we have to separate ourselves from yeah. humankind. And, and that thwarts the very happiness. I mean, why do you want to be happy, right? But if power and money isn't going to bring you happiness because it's gotten through aggression... <laughs> You've destroyed the very thing you want. Now, I figured if this man had figured out this far that, mm. you know, feeling separate was not a good idea, then eventually the what we call the power brokers of the special interests are going to get it. So I think that's that really made me recognize that liberty is good for everyone, not just you or me or not just for the poor. But it's really good for everyone because it's not just good at a physical level. It's good at a, what we would call a spiritual level, too. And so, okay. you know, so that's exciting. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, people at the top seeking after power, it's like, it's like a meal, a junk food meal. You know, you might get used to it, but um, you're just going to want more the next day. You know, it's like having a caffeine addiction. You might think that that extra cup of coffee is going to satisfy you, but actually you're just going to want another cup of coffee in four hours. And it's better if you don't get addicted and just enjoy, um, the you know, the one coffee you do have. Just, like, fully in, in, enjoy it. Don't... Um, and, and the same for us, enjoying the personal power we have in our own life to influence our friends and companions um, and those around us by our, our example or by the reputation we've gained. I wanted to add another thing when you were speaking earlier about the way that we hamper freedom abroad by interfering with military. That, of course, is not the only way we interfere. One thing we do is we don't allow the poorest countries in the world to sell us their products. And we're about to be all about capitalism, but no, you know, we, we, we fear that if we buy cheap products from abroad, that will somehow harm our people here. But actually, it would be a wonderful way to give the poor in our own countries access to cheaper goods and send our money abroad to the poorest places in the world where it's most needed. And I think if libertarians bang on drums like that more often, we can we can win the hearts and minds of people who, who feel compassion for those abroad. Yes, you got it. That's exactly right. I remember the story of Bangladesh, which I think I talked about in my book. We spent all this we spent a lot of money over there building up their factories so they could make textile goods, like clothing. And then when they did, we wouldn't allow their clothing into our country and they had to shut the factory down. <laughs> That's, that is so friend. terrible. Well, it's, it's like uh, Bastiat's bridge, you know, uh, when they, they talked about how, you know, they, the people decide to build a bridge across, the, across the, an ocean or across a certain part of the landscape. And no sooner have they built the bridge that, uh, you know, then, you know, cheaper products start coming across that bridge. People from the other side of the bridge start coming in and, and, and taking jobs and, uh, and taking up property there. And suddenly everybody complains to the government, you have to protect us from the competition that the people from the other side of this bridge are, are providing. And before you know it, the government's subsidizing everybody to the extent where it was hardly worth building the bridge in the first place. <laughs> So it, and it's, yeah. it sounds exactly what happened in, in Bangladesh. You know, it was, it was almost pointless building the factories. Yes. 
your anecdote um, about this person, that this actual person that you met who admitted that he was after power and money, uh, reminded me of the character Ellsworth Tui from the Anne Rand novel, The Fountainhead. And I couldn't believe, because I've debated with a friend of ours here in Scotland whether um, to what extent Ellsworth Tui's exists. And it sounds like you, you met one, but Unlike Anne Rand, who seemed to think that this character was irredeemable because he'd given up his humanity, you hold a contrary view of, of human nature and human motivation. And you, you kind of sort of seem to stand with Bastia and say, you know, uh, human desires are harmonious with one another. Could you, could you talk a little bit about your view of um, human humanity, human nature, your compassion for human beings and how you think we we appeal to that to uh, make the case for liberty. Well, I think you know since liberty helps everyone, I think you know all you need to do really is look at the particular situation. Uh, first of all, we talked a little earlier in this uh, show about how liberty makes or enriches the poor. I like that phrase, enriches the poor. It mm. doesn't just give them a welfare check. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, because then they'll always so be looking outside. Right, so if we really want to help people, um, we want them to be, if we really want to help the poor, we want to enrich them. And the only way really to do that is for them to be working. The only way for them to be working is for the government to back off and not destroy jobs with minimum wage laws and licensing laws and all the things that really keep the poor from working. So that's the physical and of course, this this really works at all levels because we talked about the spiritual part of it and how um, you know even even somebody who's doing really what we would consider really bad things, yeah, is that there's something discordant between the way they're operating in the world and their own happiness. So you know the compassionate view of that, of course. If I had if I had known what I know now, I probably would have said, th said some things to suggest to him that, you know, he was separating himself from humankind by the work he was doing. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, okay. during that conversation, I wasn't quite there yet. I didn't, I didn't get what was being told to me for many years. Wow. Uh, I wish I had had an opportunity to, to share that view because I think that that basically is going to be the way it's going to come down. A few people with power and money are going to get it and they're going to say, whoa, <laughs> we're, we're doing just the opposite of what we want to do here. And once that ball starts rolling, I think there's going to be a change at that level. But there needs to be a change at our level too. And when I say our level, I mean kind of the middle class level because there's a lot of belief that aggression serves us. In other words, I've heard a lot right. of people say, oh, I, I love the libertarian philosophy, I love the non-aggression principle, except in this one area. We really have to use the government to force people to do things our way in this one area because they, they for some reason, they just don't see it there. And as long right. as we do that, as long as we allow the special interests to trick us into thinking that aggression serves us, then we're going to be at their mercy. <laughs> so the way to get us out from under them uh, is, of course, to adhere to the non-aggression principle and refuse to be uh, duped into thinking that we should be controlling our neighbors their aggression because mm. that backfires on us every time. And you know, the thing is, the nice whole thing, This so what the whole picture is basically, is when we use aggression, it backfires, it hurts us. And it hurts the people we're trying to help. And so eventually when we get that, you know, we really are going to stop using aggression as our means because we realize how destructive it is. I, I was gonna say, it's kind of like slavery. You, we used to think civilization couldn't happen without slavery. Now we know better. Yes. Yeah. So what comes to mind is the new exception, because recently I've heard at least a couple of people say, yeah, I'm for free markets. I think competition, or, or as I prefer to put it, having the option of choice between service providers is good for, for consumers. But the thing is inequality. And the one thing I think for government, we definitely need to take from the very, very rich 
to help the very, very poor. Now, people do not, you say that liberty helps everyone, but if I'm to play devil's advocate, how does it help everyone to have a small number of people who have lots and lots of passive income? They've got uh, property which they rent, they've got businesses that they get um, dividends from, they've got stocks, they've got, you know, they might not even be doing that much work. They might just um, consult a financial advisor. How does that help everyone, Mary? How does okay. your free market help everyone? That's a good question. Okay, I like that question because there's only two ways to get rich in our society. Uh, one is to, of course, invent something that's great and wonderful and sell it and be successful at that. In which case, of course, you're creating wealth because goods and services are the wealth. And as you sell more of it, it becomes available to more and more people. And so, like, for example, even the poor today and most developing countries, you know, a great number of them have things like cell phones, for example, and access to the Internet. So, so that's a good thing. But in fact, much of the money today and the concentration of wealth today does not come about because somebody invents something wonderful. It comes about because in a sense, government has, has, has really given corporations uh, the freedom to violate somebody else's property, pollute it, for example, and have limited liability. So what happens with that structure is that um, they don't have to restore their victims. And as a consequence, when they do something wrong, really wrong, like polluting something beyond repair, they simply go bankrupt and reorganize. This wouldn't happen in a libertarian society. And so it wouldn't be easy for people to accumulate wealth through exploitation. <laughs> this is something that uh, actually even some libertarians um, believe in the idea of limited liability from cor for corporations, but I don't think that's a good idea at all because the only person who should be able to forgive an aggressor is the person who's been hurt. So if a corporation needs your property, only you should be able to tell them they're not liable for the rest of their lives. Only you have that option. But you see the government tells them, no, you're only liable to a certain extent of the assets that are in the corporation. And usually they fix it so the assets are pretty limited. <laughs> yeah. So we shouldn't be affording corporations the same rights as you would give to an individual. Would that be right? Well, they should have the same uh, responsibilities yeah. that a person has. Like if you know, if I if I dumped garbage on your lawn, you would expect me to clean it up if I were your neighbor, right? I mean, that would be what, what I'd have to do. But a corporation can pollute your property and give you nothing. And even if it does yeah. pollute your property, because you know it can go bankrupt and that's the end of it. But think about it: if managers were um, individually liable. They wouldn't want to pollute your property, and in fact, they probably would not operate without a lot of insurance. In other words, they'd expect the corporation yes. to provide liability insurance. Now, yeah. the insurer doesn't want to pay, so what the insurer is going to do, it's going to keep an eye on that corporation and say, I need to know how you're disposing of all this uh, you know, polluting waste because I don't want to end up having to pay for it, and so it would make sure that the good practices were in place. So, in other words, you'd have in a sense, you'd have better regulation, although I don't think of it as regulation because that's right, for yeah. the state. But if, you, if the company didn't want to have all these checks and balances in place, if it didn't want to have good practices in place, then they would have trouble getting insurance and they'd have trouble getting managers and they'd have trouble operating. So that would work out really well yeah. for the rest of us. Then they couldn't, yeah. they couldn't get rich by exploitation. You see, they could only get rich by serving us well and giving us a product we loved so much that we were willing to buy it right. and keep buying it. <laughs> yeah, make a better product at a cheaper price, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it could all work out. One other critical point is when you have the possibility of the state um, intervening in the economy, if I'm, say I've got a million pounds to invest in my company, I've now got a choice. I can invest in improving my my company's products and research and, and advertising and market research, or I can choose to go to the government and lobby. 
And the moment I predict that I will get more money, more return on my investment by going to the government than by improving my products and services, now my role's changed because my customer is no longer my client. Now my client is the government. And I think people on the left, they have a sense of this, that, um, that some corporations exploit the existence of the state, but they blame the corporations. They don't blame the fact that having a state intervene in the economy creates the incentive to use the power of the state to make a profit rather than make it honestly by selling a better product at a better price. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, and that happens at the lower echelons of our society too. I mean, I had, I had rented to welfare tenants for some time. I wanted to get to know that culture. And I actually had tenants that came up to me and said, yeah, we've made a conscious choice to go on welfare and not work because we want the leisure time. We don't care if we don't have fancy stuff. We don't care if we don't have a car. We'd like to have that extra time. And so what they're doing, of course, is, you know, basically responding to the incentives that have mm -hmm. been supplied by the state. And so, you know, we've got we've got a situation where people really should be out working, uh, being supported by the state. So that's that's the kind of thing that happens when those incentives are offered. In a libertarian society, of course, the incentives you just talked about wouldn't be there. So yes. that's, that's another twist in the whole thing. And the price of living would be far lower than it is now, so that if some people did value their leisure time, they could still maybe work 20 hours a week and um, take another few days off. Now, before, in the past, you were a medical researcher, and we'd be very remiss not to make use of your expertise in that area. Um, would you tell us a little bit about your background for those who don't know? Because you're doing a lot of work in the F uh, on the FDA and even writing a book, which I'm sure is going to be absolutely critical on the FDA. And I predict that with the knowledge that you're going to share in that book, um, you could really give people the ammunition to spark um, a revolution in having some, some of these things that the FDA does, which is bad, rolled back. Sorry for such a clunky question. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you know about this stuff and, and what your angle is. Okay, well, I'm, I'm a PhD researcher, and um, I, my PhD is in biophysics. My postdoctoral work was in surgery. I was on staff member at the St. Lucie University Medical School's Department of Surgery and assistant professor. Then I went to the Upjohn Company for 19 years, and so I've kind of been in academia and in pharmaceuticals. And of course, in pharmaceutical research, yeah. I have to deal with the FDA. And what happened, and, and uh, what happens in, in the U.S. here with the FDA, actually, I should say, affects everyone in the world, because uh, half of the drugs, the new drugs, are developed here in the U.S. So yeah. any regulations that prevent development of these new drugs uh, and having them get to the market actually are, you know, are are killing people overseas as well as here in the US. And what mm. happened in 1962 is new regulations were passed that took the time from the lab bench to the marketplace from four years to 14 years. It added 10 years of time. Wow. Okay. Yes. And these, this time is time that the companies spend pleasing the FDA doing the studies they want. And of course, if it made drugs safer, we might be excited about this, but it doesn't. <laughs> That's the problem. By anything you measure, drugs are not safer now than they were then. So mm -hmm. that's unfortunate because when we were developing drugs for AIDS, what we found when the FDA finally gave us permission to test these drugs in AIDS patient, every AIDS patient in the country had already had them through the black market. They actually hired chemists to make these drugs and distributed them throughout the AIDS community in a way actually that was, I mean, they did a pretty good job. It was pretty, it was as safe as you can make it, you know, when you're mm -hmm. dealing with something like that. And already resistant. We couldn't, we couldn't test anybody because they had already had our drugs and become resistant. So we had to wait for people with new diagnoses to test our drugs. 
And if you, uh, there was a movie out here in the U.S. called um, Dallas Buyers Club that actually won a bunch of Academy Awards, talking about yeah. how the FDA went after these buyers clubs that were distributing uh, yeah. drugs AIDS patients. They didn't do it in California so much because I think they were afraid they, the California activists would get them such bad publicity <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that you know they'd look horrible. But in in Texas, they they took them down. So. That's very sad, and, and that that happened with cancer patients too. Cancer patients decided they didn't want to go illegally, so they sued the FDA on the grounds that our Constitution promises a right to life that can't be taken away without um, due process. Right. But the courts decided that cancer patients, even if it would save their lives, could not take F unapproved drugs unapproved by the FDA to save their lives. So that was pretty sad. What yeah, was their rationale behind that, if there was any? <laughs> yeah, I know, sorry, rationale uh, and state. They just, they just felt there was no constitutional right to do it. That's how they phrased it. So. Okay, instead yeah, of saying, well, yeah. there's no, well, there wasn't any constitutional right or law that said that they couldn't do it. Though. No, no, of course not. Are these the <laughs> you same have to realize in the US. Yeah, yeah. well, our, our constitution basically yeah. says. Yeah, our constitution basically says if we haven't specifically told the government they can do it, they can't. And of course, yeah. no one told the government specifically that uh, they had to keep uh, unapproved drugs out of the hands of desperately ill people. But mm. um, the courts have misinterpreted our constitution for a long time, They've a little piece at a time, so that now it's it's basically... Uh, it's not what it used to be, let me just say that. The U.S. government does not pay attention to the U.S. Constitution in the way that it once did. And it's it's pretty much been destroyed. And this is unfortunate because, for example, Switzerland has a constitution that was pretty mm. much modeled on ours. And I think they're going through the same process a little later mm. because their constitution happened about 75 years after ours. Yeah. So isn't the part of the problem the conflict between, how do we term it, originalists, i.e. people who would say this is what the Constitution said, this is what it meant, and this is what it still means, against uh, the other group, who I can't remember the name, which would say, well, no, it's a, it's a living uh, living document yeah, and it evolves. Yeah, we have to interpret and it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the big thing is, oh, well, this Constitution was put together a couple hundred years ago. It wasn't you know, made for today, so we have to massage it and things, you know, and, and interpret it differently because now things are different. Well, of course, the Constitution was meant to embody uh, the non-aggression principle to a large extent. It missed on a couple points. Yeah. I'll be the first one to tell you that. <laughs> you know, the slavery issue, for mm. example. Um, yeah. The fact that you could have tariffs and things like that. But, you know, Basically, that's what the founders tried to do. Unfortunately, because there was always a, another group that, that wanted aggression, they had to compromise to get yeah. it out. So that's, and well, of course, I, I once guess, you Sorry, I, yes. was just, I guess with slavery, the problem was they just didn't see black people or Native American people as human beings, I suppose. Yes, that was a big problem. Yes, a large part yeah. of the of the people of that time did not, and, and they felt the same way about women too. They weren't quite, quite there. Okay. <laughs> they weren't accorded the same right. rights. But you know, yeah. thankfully we've moved forward in that direction at least, but still uh, the problem of course is that our constitution is not, um, not really enforceable today in the way it was. Yeah. Right. And that's part of why we've gone down the wrong track. Now, you mentioned earlier you were concerned about that. It, it, yes, for, mm. for the U.S., things are bad. But all countries is a little different. You know, they've been suppressed for so long. They've been poor for so long. They want to find out the secret of wealth creation. And some of them have figured it out. It's not really a secret anymore with the Internet, right? Mm. <laughs> Freedom yeah. is the number yes. one thing you need. To become wealthy, so the ones that have gotten that message are are stepping up to the plate, which I, I find find remarkable and wonderful. Yes, I heard um, on libertarian Douglas Casey. Um, he visits third world countries and talks to officials to try and get them to adopt 
free market policies. And he said in Zimbabwe, he went there and officials had read Hayek and Mises and he, he couldn't believe it. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They just didn't know how, and, and they were desperate to find answers, but they just didn't know how to employ it yet. So, um, because, because, for that interim period of upheaval that would result. And he said he tries to appeal to the ego of these leaders and says, you know, if you put in these free market reforms, your people will become much richer, much quicker, and they'll adulate you. You'll be well loved on the world stage. Um, but we'll see if he's successful or not. So it's interesting that uh, the Californians, um, th those in the, what it brought to mind you saying that people weren't allowed to take these um, drugs is the oft quoted slogan, um, my body, my choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yes. <laughs> which, which I think many of these progressives would apply to the instance of abortion and yet not to just putting drugs in your own body, much the same as, you know, many conservatives wouldn't allow people to put um, illicit substances in their body for recreational purposes. But I heard you in a previous interview mention something about this thing you called the right to try, and you were optimistic that this might get put through. Has there been, can you tell us what the right to try is, and sure. if there's any progress on that matter? Yes, yes, I can tell you quite a bit about it actually, since we passed it here in Texas. <laughs> um, okay. What happened was uh, the Goldwater Institute of Arizona decided to try to uh, recreate, in a sense, the mm -hmm. lawsuit that the cancer patients had uh, uh, had taken to the courts. And the way this works, because what the cancer patients were trying to do is they were saying, if we're terminally ill, and yeah. if there's a drug in clinical trials, and if this drug has been safety tested, but just hasn't been attested for effectiveness yet, we should be able to take it. So that's what okay. right to try says. And it also says you don't have to go through the FDA. You can go directly to the drug company and say, hey, I'd like your drug. I'm willing to pay for it or would you donate it, depending on the state. Some states allow the companies to charge the patients, others do not. So um, the problem is that most companies are going to hesitate to use right to try. They want to, but if they do, and the FDA them for going around them, then the FDA can hold up their approvals for many, many years. There's no set timetable that the FDA has to operate under, and it has punished companies before. So that is the okay. biggest problem. Nevertheless, <laughs> there have been some brave doctors and drug companies who are using right to try And here in Texas, okay. a cancer doctor was giving his patients experimental treatment that's available in Europe and other places in the world for many years for testing. And then once the testing was done, the FDA said, you can't give them that drug anymore until it's marketed. Well, marketing is probably a couple years away. Those people would be dead by then. Yeah. So he used to try and keep giving them the drug and the, the company uh, was courageous enough to give them the drug. And in Texas, they can't pay for it. So this is truly charity by the pharmaceutical firm. So that was, it's exciting. It's exciting to see that happen. And there's a lot of instances with the small biotech companies where they might try to try and do that because if they don't, they have to then usually hand their drug over to a big drug company that takes most of the profits. So this would work out really well for them if they could, mm -hmm. they could do this. Yeah. I read a statistic that per capita, Americans spend $858 on drugs per cap uh, compared to an average of $400 for 19 other industrialized nations. And that part of the reason why Americans pay so much more for drugs is um, the patent laws are very strict in America. Now you have a unique take on um, on this because you, yes. you've mentioned <laughs> that. Yes. So please, please, please tell me what yes. what your views are. Well, there's a lot of factors that go into the drug pricing. Um, one, obviously, is a lot of other countries regulate their drug prices, 
The downside yeah. for their population on that, though, is that um, because it takes a couple years to decide on the price. So they get life-saving drugs a couple years later than we might in the U.S. That's, that's one thing. The other way they pay for it, like in Canada, for example, if you, if you get a prescription drug in Canada, it's cheaper in Canada if it's a new drug. But if it's a generic, it's a lot more. And that's mm. how the companies balance it. So if, in other words, for countries that don't pay high prices for new drugs, they end up paying much higher prices for generics than we do here. And if you think about it for a moment, it has to be that way because if the company's not going to make money in your country, it's not going to yeah. sell the drug, right? you know. And also, another twist, some countries have regulations as the FDA does. When I was working at the Upjohn company, we always did our first studies in Europe because we could get into people earlier in Europe. And also, the regulations let us put it on the market, for example, earlier in South America. So we marketed first in South America. Well, when we can do that, and we don't have to go through all the regulatory process we do here, we can charge less for the drug. So there's a lot of factors that go into the pricing of drugs. Now, there's a movement here saying, well, gee, what we're really doing in the U.S. is we're paying for the research for the rest of the world. Uh, but that's not totally true. I think there's a little bit of truth in it, but as I said, what most people don't realize is that countries that pay less for new drugs for them, they usually also pay more for the generic drugs in proportion. Of course, right. there's always right. the currency factor too. You know, um, in other words, the so if if a you know if there's a country that thing is a lot cheaper than the U.S. Obviously, drugs will be a lot cheaper there too, and that's just you know how it goes because otherwise people can't afford them. So there's a lot of factors that go into that. Okay, how would you? I mean, I, I know you, one one guy in particular here in the UK who works for a pharmaceutical company and has claimed. Um, you just if if the government, as they do here in the UK, if the government doesn't subsidise new drugs or subsidise uh, pharmaceuticals, then they just want development because those production costs won't be met. And if you don't allow companies to patent. Uh, new drugs and mm -hmm. patent certain types of drugs, then it, it, it's not worth their while developing them because, you know, anybody could then make that drug and sell it cheaper. So new, uh, new drugs just wouldn't get developed and wouldn't get researched. How, how, how do you answer that one? Yeah, well, actually, when I started at the F. John Company, we were still developing drugs that didn't have patents. But okay. well, after I was there about two years, uh, management changed their mind on that. And the reason is, these regulations I talked about that came out in 62, um, they basically give the FDA carte blanche. So every year, more and more and more and more and more regulations. So by the time I was a couple years at the Upjohn company, it had become so costly to develop a drug that unless you had a patent, you had no hope of recovering your costs. So I think in a free market, where you didn't have the government dictating what studies you had to do. Right. I don't think drug development would be that expensive and you could go ahead and develop things. Now, it's it's interesting. There are some there are some companies that have what they've done is they've taken like fish oil for example. Now that's an yeah. over the counter product. Uh, it's very healthful if you get a pure fish oil. And what a uh, couple companies here have done is they've taken the active ingredient of fish oil a molecule to the end of it and then patented that whole molecule. When you okay. take it in the body, the extra chemical falls off. <laughs> so now they have a patentable fish oil and they've gone through the FDA process. So now only these two companies can go right. legally to doctors in the U.S. and say, our fish oil does this, this, and this. Right. Okay. Well, I'm not sure how I feel. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's okay. not ideal because now the fish oil is very expensive. The copay right. in the U.S. is the same as if you went and got a high quality fish oil at Walmart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure That's how right. I feel about people patenting molecules. It sounds to me like you know patenting a plant, or you know, it's part of the natural world. 
But what I draw from part of what you've said is basically when it took four years to pass through the FDA hoops, it was economical to issue a medication without a patent. But now that it takes 14 years, it's yeah. no longer economical. Yes, that's so, exactly right. I don't think we have, let me just say this, I don't think the pharmaceutical uh, need patents in a free market. The reason that patents have become a necessity is because of all the regulations and the cost that's associated with them. So if we didn't have patents, we wouldn't have new drugs. Now, of course, the solution isn't to give out more patents, in my opinion. The solution is to roll back the regulations that make it so expensive right. and don't give us any benefits in terms of safety. Calculate so we have that. A... Go ahead. Okay. We have a question from a listener. Does Dr. Ruhr have any views on the patenting of epigenetics research in order to keep people dependent on standard drugs? I hope you understand the question better than I do. <laughs> well, basically, my, my position on patents is I don't need them at all. And that's yeah. the best solution. Because the, the problem is once you start patenting things, uh, and there's been some genetic patents, uh, here in the U.S., things get very confusing. And what's happened is the patent office here in the U.S. has basically thrown up its hands and said, oh, we allowed patenting of genes, but I don't think we're going to allow that anymore because it's it's really screws things up. We can't figure out when we should patent and when we shouldn't. <laughs> so getting a patent, I have several patents. I had to get them, you know, when I worked it up done. And uh, I can tell you it's a little bit of a, I don't know if I'd call it a game exactly, but you know, you have to position everything just so um, because when the examiners look at all the literature, you have to show that what you have is unique and, and it's, it's a little bit of an art, let's say. So it's, it's not really the ideal situation in so many ways. So, you know, ideally I'd say no patents. Um, as long as we have the FDA hovering over us, there will have to be some patents. And that's very deplorable. Uh, that's not the solution. That that just ends up hurting everybody because it delays the development time. It delays, in fact, that's what I was gonna say earlier. I, I calculate that that 10 year delay yeah. has caused about 5 million Americans to die since 1962, prematurely. and. It's it, four times that many people have probably died because you can't um, put certain drugs on the market. For example, I was, I was working on liver disease. The FDA actually called me up personally and said, hey, we understand that you have a patent on prostaglands and liver disease, and we want you to know that we are here to help you because there's nothing for liver disease, right? But the problem is, when you develop something that's brand new, that's you don't know the best way to test it. We didn't know what dose to give. We didn't know how many doses you needed to give per day. We didn't need to, we didn't know how long a person would have to take it. And by the time, there were other things too, so by the time we looked at everything we had to know that we didn't know, if we did the study and guessed anything wrong, we wouldn't get the statistical significance that the FDA requires, and we'd have to start all over again. And by right. then, our oh, plan So we decided not to do it. So there's a lot of things on the shelves Terrible. in the pharmaceutical companies that could save lives and never make it to market. About four times as many people, another 20 million Americans have died because those things were not on the market. 20 you know, million? Million, yeah. Basically, it's one out of That's five. Yes, it's right. One out of five people who have died in the U.S. have had their, this is a conservative estimate, by the way. One out of five people have died prematurely in the U.S., but the reality is we've all probably been affected because one of the things they do in the U.S. is they, they inhibit the knowledge that certain unpatented nutrients can, can help with disease. And, for example, folic acid is a B vitamin. We've known since the early 80s that if you give folic acid to women, young women who might get pregnant, because you have to have it early, uh, then you can prevent spina bifida and other horrible birth defects. 
But the FDA wow. told the folic acid manufacturers, if they even talked about it, that they'd shut them down because they hadn't gone through the FDA's regulatory process, right? And they couldn't because yeah. it's, a, it's unpatentable now. I mean, everybody knows about it, right? So even when the Center for Disease Control, another government agency, started making that recommendation, FDA said they couldn't even mention it. So basically, American women went for about 12 years without knowing they could prevent these birth defects. So that's about, you know, I'd say about 25,000 children were either born unnecessarily deformed and probably institutionalized because these are serious birth defects or were aborted because you test for it in okay. utero. That's worse than the Thalimai tragedy that sparked the 62 Amendments. Yeah, so. Absolutely. Yeah, but without government, how would we stop people selling uh, products that give children birth defects? <laughs> I mean, the, the, <laughs> well, the double... Uh, yeah, because, well, for, yeah, well, <laughs> back in the days before the FDA was very active, a company's reputation really is what sold the products. So if you started putting stuff on the market that hurt people, mm -hmm. People stop buying your products. <laughs> now you know, easier and, than ever with the internet to to share yes. anecdotes of harmful products. Well, um, we wanted to change pace and speak before we wrap up a little bit about your political career. Yeah, just just briefly to touch on that. Um, but well, first of all, just to break into it, do you know what Aleppo is? I'm sorry, <laughs> say that again. Do you know what Aleppo is? I don't know, that's the one that caught Gary oh, Johnson. <laughs> yes, Aleppo. <laughs> yeah, Gary Johnson yeah. kind of got hung up on that one, didn't he? But you know, yeah. it's kind of sad yeah, today because no one's going to know everything, and uh, at least he... I know, I thought If only George W. Bush had no idea where Iraq was, you know? If, if only... If only <laughs> You know, if only John F. Kennedy had had absolutely no clue where Vietnam was. You know, maybe you know, maybe <laughs> maybe things could have turned out differently. But what what made you throw your 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 efforts into sort of a, a political career, if I can call it that? Because many libertarians think like there's no point. You know, as soon as you you know, if you dance with the devil, the devil doesn't change. The devil just changes you. You know, it's almost impossible to change this behemoth from the inside. So, what made you kind of go down that that route? Well, I, I think you're actually asking me, why do I run for office as a libertarian? Is that what I'm yeah. hearing? Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, okay. Right. Well, first of all, the offices I've run for, I'm, I'm pretty sure at the outset I'm not going to win. <laughs> I basically use it as a platform to educate. Yeah. Uh, as okay. I said, I'm basically a teacher. It's didactic. So, yeah, so for me, there's really, and, and especially I have to tell you, in the early days of the libertarian movement, there really wasn't, there wasn't another good way to get the word out. That was actually pretty effective because, you know, you got invited to um, classrooms, you got invited to forums, at least after we broke in, finally. And, and the League of Women Voters used to tell us, you guys have the best candidates. You actually answered the questions <laughs> because, of course, we did. That's what we were there for, right? And, and we knew we weren't going to get elected. But right. what we're doing is laying the groundwork for you know, people to demand that, you know, their politicians follow the non-aggression principle. Of course, yeah. the politicians sort of by definition don't, you know? yeah. but I think people will realize that. I mean, it was a forum. Now, today, unfortunately, at least in the U.S., our libertarian candidates don't always even seem to know what the non-aggression principle is. Yeah. We've had a lot of people you from other parties. the aggression principle if it smacked you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I mean, you know, you can see it in our last few presidential candidates. They haven't mentioned the non-aggression principle once. I tried to impress upon the people that I was talking to that, you know, there was a principle behind We yeah. just didn't take our stand willy-nilly. And because it was a principle, most libertarian candidates could be counted on to have the same stance. So you yeah. could vote libertarian confidence. That, unfortunately, is no longer true in the U.S. I hope it's more true elsewhere, but it's not in the U.S. The good news, okay. though, is the Libertarian Party is not the only way to get into the movement anymore. It used to be. We have Students for Liberty, Young Americans for Liberty. We have an uncountable number of nonprofits that share yeah. the message. So 
there's a lot of other ways to understand libertarianism today. Okay, we had one contra uh, a question from one of our listeners who um, mentioned there was a bit of controversy around one of your statements in your little book, which people can download from your website, I believe, Short Answers to the Tough Questions. He says, you claim children can willingly participate in sex. This goes against the view that most libertarians hold, which is that children are unable to consent as they aren't fully developed enough to understand what they're consenting to. Do you still hold this view today? And that comes from Abe Mamey, that question. Glad you brought that up, Abe, because, you know, I, I think what happened when I wrote that and said children, I was using the legal definition of children, which in most states is under 18 years of age. So basically right. what's happened, what's happened is I think people have read that and they've said, oh, uh, basically, Mary's saying five-year-olds can make a decision. No, that's not what was meant by that. Um, okay. In fact, what it was kind of going for is talking about how having an age limit on anything uh, really gets us into a bit of trouble. And it's interesting because how this uh, how pornography and uh, for the most part, and what's happened today, for example, is we have... We have teenagers who are having sex with, uh, say, men that are having sex with a, a girl that's a year younger than they are, and they're being prosecuted for statutory rape. They're, be yeah. they're you know, now they're a sex offender. The rest of their life, they're hounded, basically, because they have to announce to their sheriff in any county they move into that they, you know, have this background. Yeah. And also, even yeah. more terrible than that, teenagers are sexting themselves to their boyfriends or girlfriends. We even have a case where a man, he, he sexed uh, a naked picture of himself. He's being prosecuted both as a minor and an adult. He's being prosecuted as an adult for molesting a child, which is himself. Now, <laughs> it's so crazy. <laughs> So he's being called an adult and a child. This is how the laws are okay. used when they're yeah. aged. Make your mind up, yeah. So so this is why it's a little so dangerous sort of the use to have, of the law. Yes, it's yeah. very dangerous to have age. Uh, in other words, to say, okay, if a, if a person has sex with a 16-year-old, then he's, he's, he's um, you know, automatically raping her. So, you know, and yes, some... Some people are ready to make that decision in early teens. Some people are never able to make that decision, regardless yeah. of how old they are. They're too easily influenced for some reason in their childhood or whatever. So it's it really has to be done on a case by case basis about whether or not you know somebody has had their arm twisted to have sex. And of course, yeah. that gets into the whole thing of what is considered aggression or compulsion. Here, you can see it's yeah. a pretty gray area. Yes. Okay. I'm, okay. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to duck out soon. Yes. But um. So, but I can leave you with Anthony. I, I just. I just want to ask one more question before I. Before I have to. to go. Uh, it strikes me. I mean, I've. I've been involved in libertarianism now for about six, seven years. Uh, and it seems in the UK at least, and I think in America, but you can clear this up. There seems to be a dearth of women in the libertarian movement. And that seems strange because the, the three, you know, godmothers of, of American libertarian, you know, all three women, Anne Rand, great libertarian, but there seems to be a dearth of women in the, the libertarian movement. Now I've got my own thoughts about that, but maybe I'm missing something. What do you feel the reason for that is? Why, I mean, by comparison to the left, for example, and in other mainstream parts, and, and well. even the conservatives, why is there so few women in the libertarian movement? Yeah, unfortunately in the U.S., the libertarians have tended to pick up on this idea of judging from Ayn Rand. You know, she said, judge and be prepared to be judged. I think not all, certainly, have a softer view of that. You know, they are okay. leaning towards the compassionate side of things, the, the loving side of things. 
compared to the rational side of things. I, I'm fortunate I have a bit of both. So, right. um, but I think a lot of the men in the libertarian movement are rationalists, and they don't they don't understand that the heart is just as important as the head. And I think that's a big turnoff for American women who are coming okay. into politics really because they want to see a better world. <laughs> and if we as libertarians don't get that, right and if we don't understand how our philosophy creates that, we're never going to get anywhere. Yeah. I share your view on that, and, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I write as a former leftist. I, I try and sell the ideas to my younger self. Well, Mary, it's no exaggeration to say that this is one of my favorite episodes of our podcast so far. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I enjoyed our laughs and hearing from your insights. I would be so delighted to have you back on the show when you finish your new book, on the FDA. So please tell us when might that be out and uh, what's it called and where can they get your critical details? Okay, so um, the book is going to be called Death by Regulation. And uh, I'm not title. sure the subtitle, yeah, I'm not sure the subtitle yet. I think it might be How We Were Robbed of a Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. Or something what about similar. FDA Kills Millions? <laughs> I thought about that. I'm trying to blame the amendments, not the okay. FDA. All right. Because the FDA actually is sort of between a rock and a hard place, which I explain in the book. So, okay. you know, there's some, they've got pressures too. So it's going to be out probably at the end of this year, beginning of next. And you can get more information for, on everything about me at my website, ruart.com. That's R-U-W-A-R-T.com. I got a lot of free stuff there for your listeners, so I hope they'll take advantage Thank of it. You. Yes, I hope that Wonderful. people will take advantage of the chance to download an old edition of this, uh, maybe this, right. the third edition, I think this is the second edition. But if you do live in the States and you've got some spare dollar, please uh, <laughs> don't hesitate to get a hard copy of edition four because it's updated, it's really thrilling, and it would be great to support Dr. Ruert's fantastic work. Until we next speak again, thank you so much for coming in the Scottish Absolutely. Liberty Podcast. It was it was a real pleasure. Well thank you. I really enjoyed it. I hope to be back.